This is Steady Habits, a Connecticut Mirror podcast. It's where we take a look at life here in the land of steady habits, what works, what doesn't, and how to make things work just a little bit better. I'm John Dankosky. Thanks so much for joining me. In a state that's been almost entirely run by Democrats for years, it's not surprising that Connecticut's moderate governor, Ned Lamont, is getting a bit of a push from the left. Representative Robin Porter of New Haven is co-chair of the legislature's labor committee. And she's been a vocal opponent of what she calls Lamont's austerity budget. She wants more investment in state programs to help vulnerable residents through the economic damage of the pandemic. And to do that, she wants to raise taxes on wealthy residents, an idea Lamont has rejected. Porter's also been critical of a vaccine rollout strategy that's given advantages to white suburban residents. She says it's pretty simple. Just do it by zip code and target the neediest residents first. It's a strategy that the state is starting to adopt. In our conversation, Robin Porter and I also talk about something she and Lamont agree on, the legalization of marijuana. Their ways of getting about it may be a little bit different. We also talk about the overwhelming passage of the Crown Act, a multi-state effort to prohibit discrimination based on hairstyles. It's a bill that Porter strongly supported. We started by talking about an op-ed that she wrote for the Connecticut Mirror's viewpoint section right at the start of the legislative session. She says there that Connecticut must invest in a worker-centered recovery. Here's our conversation. Representative Porter, welcome to Steady Habits. Thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank you for having me, John. There's a lot I want to talk to you about, but I want to, want to actually go back to a, an op-ed that you wrote at the start of the year for the Connecticut Mirror. And you started this piece by talking about the unequal way in which this pandemic is affecting people in our state. I guess I'll ask you broadly, do you think that Connecticut is doing enough to address inequities in the way it's been handling the COVID crisis? I do not. I really don't. No, not at all. I, I think there's a lot more we could be doing. I mean, when you think about how Connecticut residents are hurting, you know, we can take a look at Connecticut's unemployment rate. It's over 8%, which is approximately 200,000 unemployed workers. Um, we have more than 15,000 families that are in danger of eviction, and they're actually seeking renter's assistance. Um, we have one in five Connecticut adults with children. They say that their children don't have enough food to eat. I actually remember running into a mom early on in the pandemic, and I can remember her telling me it's gotten so bad that my family were eating once a day because that's how we have to ration the food. And she, she had five children. So, um, you know, and then we have more than 200,000 people without health insurance, John. Um, and that was before the pandemic, right? This was pre-COVID. Uh, 57,000 households with children lack reliable internet access or electronic devices, which is disproportionately represented in districts like mine uh, in New Hallville and in Southern Hamden. We have a great digital divide. 41% uh, of Connecticut adults have reported symptoms of depression or anxiety. And um, I hear a lot of this. I have a sister that works at a nursing home in New Haven. And I mean, even early on to present, she talked about the emotional toll, uh, the trauma impact, how they will just step out of rooms and have meltdowns. And you know that they'll have to comfort each other. They're crying. Uh, these are people that they care for. They love like family. Um, early on in the pandemic, they were seeing five and six bodies a day roll out of the nursing home. Nobody's addressing the mental health crisis that uh, Connecticut is in, not to mention the opioid deaths. 
there, there's a rapid increase there. And then nearly double the proportion of um, white residents have been vaccinated compared to black residents. So no, I think we, we are still struggling with a really apparent right, uh, inequities in Connecticut, disproportionate impact in communities of color, uh, especially black communities. There's a lot that I want to get to in there. Maybe we can just start, though, with this with this vaccine inequity. The state has recently changed its guidelines for who's going to get vaccinated next. As you say, black folks in the state have been hit much harder by this pandemic, uh, not just in the state, but all across the, the country. We're finding that black residents are not getting vaccinated anywhere near as quickly. There had been a hope amongst many people who work as essential workers in the state that they would be next in line. But when we go to an age-based rollout, that means more white residents will get it once again than black residents. So first of all, what do you think we need to do about that to change it? Because the governor and the other folks who are running the vaccine distribution say, this is the best way to get the most people vaccinated the most quickly. So they're making that point there, but what do you think needs to be done? Um, I, I'm going to push back on this is the best way to get it done to get the most people vaccinated, because if you're not getting the people that need the vaccination the most first, then what's the point? And I think that they really do need to put an, into practice a system that is going to make sure that essential workers um, are at the front of that line. Uh, majority of them are black and brown. Majority of them are black women. And then the other thing is we have homebound. You know, nobody's talking about what we're doing with the people that are homebound. We got to meet people where they are. And a lot of those people come from communities of color. So we know that the data supports that black and brown communities have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic, but we were being disproportionately impacted pre-COVID. That's absolutely right. And I guess the, the question, though, is if the way that the state has decided to do this is to tier it because they were concerned that there were so many pre-existing conditions that they had to sift through, so many different job titles they had to sift through. Essentially, what I'm hearing from the state is if they go to any system other than an essentially age-based system, the rollout's going to take much, much longer. And some of the people that you say need it the most right now still might not get it in that system until much later because you'd be creating this gigantic class of essential workers up front and it wouldn't be as efficient. I think we do it by zip code. I mean, we know that uh, this country, this state has been redlined by zip code. So if you're really looking to address the inequities for real, you know where they are. And, and it's as easy as looking at the zip code and meeting those people in their communities where they are and making sure that they are vaccinated. When you say look at the zip code, it's so interesting because that could that could apply to so many things that you let off our conversation with and so many things that need to be addressed, right? We know where the problems are. We literally have them by zip code, but yet we often apply solutions of all types fairly broadly across the state without really zeroing down on the fact that some people in some very specific neighborhoods are hurting much worse than others. Absolutely. And I mean, that has been, that's historical. That has always been the practice. Um, you know, when I look at Governor Lamont's budget, you know, let's talk about the fact that that is inequitable. Uh, in the midst of the greatest crisis in a hundred years, Governor Lamont has proposed an austerity budget that will guarantee a stagnant economy, drawn out recession and worsening inequality. 
right? Uh, the budget benefits the ultra wealthy by continuing to cut estate tax for multi-million dollar estates, while in contrast, he wants to raise the gas tax and tax on retired teachers. And um, these, these regressive taxes don't work because like you said, when you're doing stuff like that, it's straight across the board. So the wealthy people, they're not gonna feel that. It's the folks that are struggling to make ends meet. It's the, the folks that are working two, three, and four jobs, not to save, not to invest, but to make ends meet. It's the families that are eating once a day because they're having in the ration food. I mean, so it, it, it's just, yeah, the budget just, it, it includes too many cuts to um, uh, assistance to families, to people with disabilities, to the elderly. Um, this asset test that he's created for Medicare savings program. I mean, it's just a disproportionate impact on the people that are hurting the most. And where I'm most confused is we're cutting spending where we're not spending. We're cutting spending where we always cut spending. And why aren't we, you know, going after the, the, the dollars that are lucrative and being spent and not even spent in the local economy, being spent on Wall Street and on stocks and bonds and yeah, I think that we, we need to take a real good look at what we're doing and we need to start talking about tax equity and fairness to everyone. The more money you make, the more taxes you should pay, right? I think it's a no-brainer. So so what what does that look like in your mind? Obviously, you you and some of your colleagues have rolled out a tax proposal that's, that's not only different than Governor Lamont's mm-hmm. proposal by a long shot, but it's also different than that that's coming from some Democratic leaders in the Senate that want to raise taxes on the wealthy, but only in a very small way, mostly some of the investment dollars that, that they get. How does your plan look different? Well, I think the, the first thing is that we've got to stop nickel and diamond. If we're going to do this, we need to do it for real, because the argument is always made that, you know, well, you, you raise taxes on the rich, you know, but we didn't do it in a way that has really been impactful. Um, we we want to make sure that we are looking at the fact that the, the Great Recession showed us, you know, the risk is not going too big. It's going too small. And we need to be bold and risk, you know, or we're going to risk further damaging the economy. So we're looking at, um, you know, across the tax base, making sure that people that have the money should be paying more taxes so that we can fund public schools. Um, we have an ECS Alliance District uh, cut. I don't understand that. Like we're already dealing in districts where, what I just said, we have digital divide. Uh, We need to fully implement the ECS funding formula to reduce the inequality in schools because this pandemic has just brought a greater divide. You know, we're looking at investing in higher ed. Our community college system in UConn are facing huge deficits. We need to fund them. So tuition doesn't rise. We know that, you know, education is the key um, to, to, to prosperity. Uh, healthcare, you know, this pandemic has surely highlighted the desperate need for us to fund a public option and expand affordable health insurance for all. We want to invest in nursing homes and long-term care. You know, we've seen the damage that has been done uh, throughout this pandemic. We don't want to see that happen again. We want to address housing. You know, we, we want to build affordable housing. We want to expand rent relief. And we also want a pathway to home ownership. You know, like the people that have been left behind deserve a platform where they can build generational wealth. Um, and the mental health piece that I talked about earlier. You know, we want to expand on addiction services, substance abuse programs. 
address the opioid crisis, you know, and we want to expand mobile crisis services to be 24-7. You know, anyone having a mental health issue, crisis, there needs to be someone trained, a mental health professional to respond to these calls. So when we talk about, it's not just about revenues and having more um, money in the coffers. It's about having the resources to bridge these gaps. And we, we like to talk about an achievement gap. It's not an achievement gap. It's an opportunity and resource gap. So these revenues would be to build from the bottom. Because when we lift from the bottom, John, everyone gets elevated. But long-term, Representative, we've got so many unfunded liabilities that we've got to pay for. How does a plan like yours, which would which would tax the rich certainly to do some of the things that need to be done right now, how does it address those long-term concerns with all the bills that we've got in all these out-year budgets? Well, I don't think it's just about taxing the rich. I think it's actually about creating some livable, sustainable uh, wages, um, making sure that people are in jobs where they have disposable income, where they can spend money uh, right back into the local economy. I think it's about the workforce development. So, I mean, that's one piece of it that would help now, but that would also help to build on what we need to elevate people financially so that there's not a strain on the economy, that the wraparound services, that people have a way, a pathway to prosperity, right? So as you help them build, they actually get right back to, to the economy. And I think the one thing that's not being discussed, you know, I chair labor and, and the, the, the cannabis industry is booming. Um, and I want to talk about the cannabis industry and what that looks like in Connecticut when we're talking about workforce development, uh, when we're talking about apprenticeships and training uh, and, 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 and the jobs that will really bring people out of poverty. I mean, this industry rose 32 percent during the past two, 12 months. And you're talking about the past 12 months in a pandemic. They have 321,000 full-time jobs, John, when we lost 22 million jobs in the pandemic nationwide. So I think this is, is notable because the growth in this, this cannabis industry has been during a year marked by global pandemic, spiking unemployment and an economic recession. Uh, you know, our economy shrank by three and a half percent while, you know, the cannabis industry actually had a four-year actual growth of 100 and 61%. Well, but so so there's something, I mean, that you and the governor have in, in common, right? He wants to do something around legalized marijuana. You certainly do as well. What we've seen in other states, though, is despite really good efforts at making that equitable in terms of who actually gets a piece of that industry, it doesn't always work out that way. It's hard to get capital to actually get into the, the cannabis industry because it's still federally a controlled substance. In Massachusetts, they had a whole lot of plans to figure out how uh, black Massachusetts residents could get involved in this to try to uh, undo some of the historical problems that have been caused by the war on drugs. But that hasn't really panned out in Massachusetts so far. I guess I'm wondering if you're concerned about the fact that getting into the cannabis industry may well indeed be another way in which Connecticut creates an inequitable industry for itself. Absolutely. And that's why, you know, I have um, House Bill 6377 out of the Labor Committee that actually deals with labor peace agreements in the workforce piece, because, you know, the bill that we have truly uh, and thoroughly takes an account of the damage done by the war on drugs, which I call the war on black, brown and poor people. And it uses data to determine how to reinvest those dollars most effectively. It, it, it focuses on workforce development, 
creating thousands of jobs. It also focuses on apprenticeships and training. Um, it, it raises moral obligations. It brings the Native American uh, tribes into it. It it really addresses everything around making sure that our labor force that we're putting back over these 200,000 people that are not working and most likely won't have the same jobs to go back to that they got laid off from. So I think that we really need to be looking at putting um, the people that have been impacted the most, right, the communities of color that um, suffered the most harm at the front of the line. And that means that we can't allow medicinal licensees to have a fast track into the business because we know that those are the big corporate capital folks, white males in this business. And we got to make sure when we do this, because it's going to happen, when we do it in Connecticut, that equity has to be what's driving the bus. And that means that, you know, we may not get out the gate as quick as everybody else, but as we get out the gate, we're making sure that the people that have been harmed the most are on the front of the bus and not the back. But but, but that's always the concern, right, is you want to make sure it's equitable, but you also want to make sure that it, it launches in a way that, that provides some of the, the tax revenues that you're talking about. If, if it slows down, if it doesn't get going quite as fast as it could, that means that we don't have the resources necessary coming from that industry. This is one of the reasons why people are concerned about you know, putting too many rules and regulations around how we grow cannabis uh, industry in the state? Well, see, for me, speaking as a black woman in America, um, growing up in the communities that have been harmed the most by this um, uh, criminalization of cannabis, it's not about the revenues is the icing on the cake. This is about reparation. This is about making our communities, our families, our people whole. So, Reparations is what's important to me. And we always talk about how do we do that? This is a way to do that. This is a way to make sure that the people that have been harmed the most, um, marginalized and criminalized are going to be a part of this. And it's not going to be fair or equitable to see white males, right? If we take this black market, I mean, basically how I see the governor's bill right now is taking the black market and making it a white market. I mean, and you're going to allow white males right, to come into this business and capitalize. This is a billion-dollar business. Illinois, they thought they got it right. They didn't get it right either, but they made a billion dollars last year, you know? A lot of these folks are making two to three billion dollars a year, and that's in 2020 sales, and this is the cannabis industry. So the money is there, and I'm talking big bucks, so let's just make sure that the people that need to be made whole need to be restored and healed are at the front of that line, that they get first first dibs on those dollars. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the eviction crisis in the state, prompted by the pandemic, but also prompted by the fact that a lot of people just didn't have the way to pay for high rents before the pandemic even hit. Uh, the state has put a small amount of money into rental assistance. It hasn't all been used uh, from what I understand, and it's nowhere near enough to help all the people who actually need help. What would uh, some sort of eviction crisis funding look like from your standpoint? How do we help people who are renters who need help? And how do we frankly help landlords as well, the ones who are trying to do the right thing but are suffering an awful lot this pandemic too because people can't pay the rents? I think the money should be going to the landlords. That's how you help everybody. I mean, like you pay the landlord. Um, if, if you can't pay your rent, then and, and, and someone is going to do that for you, then that money 
should be going to the landlord. And I think that solves the problem. What does a better health system in Connecticut look like to you? Oh my gosh, just access. Everyone should have access to affordable health care. And I think the thing that's really shameful, not just Connecticut, but this country in general, ties health care to employment. So you think about all the hundreds of thousands of people that lost their job over this last year. If they had health insurance, they also lost their health insurance, which puts a tremendous strain on our hospitals and our emergency rooms that are already inundated from this pandemic. A last thing for you, Representative. Tell me why the Crown Act is such an important piece of legislation to pass here in Connecticut. Wow. Oh, God. <laughs> I could I could really, like, just cry. It's, it's emotional because, you know, growing up, th- th- these are the things that we, we had to deal with. My daughter dealt with it. Um, I, our people have been dealing with not being able to show up as our authentic selves and always having to conform, you know, and that really becoming a way of life for us, uh, trying desperately to fit in and um, be accepted. And, you know, being able to, to, to put something in place that liberates my people and creates liberating spaces for them outside of their homes, um, it, it, it's just tremendously humbling uh, to know that we, you know, I, I think about my grandchildren I think about my great-grandchildren to come and all the beautiful little babies that will be able to show with their afros and their afro puffs and their cornrows and their box braids, you know, or they have, they're here just out, you know, however they want to wear it and, and to be accepted for that and to be embraced for that and not to be shamed for that and feeling the need that um, you're just not good enough, you know, and, and that something's wrong with you. Like, you know, your hair's not good enough. It's, I, I, yeah. It's exciting. It's so exciting and and, and it's liberating. And it's just, you know, it's hope, you know, it's hope that we're one bite at a time. We're getting to this equity thing that we we really are creating an equitable environment where people can feel safe, you know, and feel good when they show up. Hmm. Representative Robin Porter, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, John. That's State Representative Robin Porter of New Haven. She's co-chair of the legislature's Labor Committee. If you want to join us for a really interesting conversation about big technology and the limits of free speech on social media, you can go to ctmirror.org slash events. I'll be talking with a number of national experts about Section 230. It's the federal law that holds social media companies harmless for lies, defamation, and even threats posted by users. It should be a really interesting conversation, and you can take part. It's happening on Wednesday, March 24th from 7 to 8 p.m. It's on Zoom, of course, and you can register once again at ctmirror.org slash events. Thanks to the staff of the Connecticut Mirror for their production help this week. Thanks to George Mastrianis and Dave Swanson of Legend Studios in Avon, Connecticut for providing our steady beats. I'm John Dankosky, and we'll talk to you again next week.